Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey away, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew uh, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you tonight humbly asking for your power, your grace, your mercy, that we would be able to look into your word this evening and see wondrous things, Lord. Help us to, as your people, be built up to the full image of Christ. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see how we are to love and serve you, how we are to complete our mission this evening, Lord, to show your glory to the nations. Fill your glory and all the earth, by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever had a task looming, a deadline approaching, and not just the everyday stuff, like the chores or homework or getting to one meeting on time? I mean a really big project. For students, this might be a final project that you work all semester on, an employee Maybe a big presentation that you have to do. Couples looking to get married. You have to plan that wedding day. For parents that are expecting, you have a baby coming and you have to prepare. For a soldier, they know they're going to get deployed one day. There's a mission and they prepare for it before the orders for deployment ever come. In all of these situations, you have one objective, something that is, is a pivotal, pivotal moment in your life that you must prepare for. It requires diligence, planning, preparation. If the student 
doesn't do the project, they don't get the degree. If the employee doesn't do the presentation, they lose their job. And if the soldier doesn't prepare, he may lose his life. This is the sense of the urgency that we have in this passage tonight. The church has a mission given to them by the Lord. But failure to them means much more than not getting a degree or losing their job or even maybe their life. And after all, Christ did say that if anyone would follow him, they have to give up everything, even their life. No, we see in verse 8 of this chapter that failure for them means failing to witness to God's glory displayed in the gospel of Christ to the nations. Turn with me for a moment to Luke 24, verse 45. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So we see the mission for the church. It's very clear. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations starting in Jerusalem. Proclaim the message that Christ gave them. That God forgives those who repent. Those who turn toward him in faith and repent of their sins. So let me start by saying that if you are here tonight and you've never heard the gospel of Christ, never known what it means to trust Christ, let me proclaim this message to you. There's nothing more important this evening that I'm going to say for you than what I'm about to say right now. God is the rightful king of all creation and has declared what honors him and what does not. And we all know what right and wrong is in our hearts because our conscience accuses us when we do wrong. God has said that there is a day that's coming when all will stand before him. After your life ends, you will stand before God as a judge. God will judge you and try you for all of the evil things, the sins that you have committed and done in this life. Every lie, everything you've taken that's not yours, every prideful thought and action, your friends may excuse this. Your family may look the other way, but God cannot because he is a holy God. Because you as a sinner are constantly trying to steal the glory from God and for yourself. See, this is treason, and the sentence for treason is death. God has said that all who sin will spend eternity in hell punished for their sins. But there is hope. There is good news. This same God that cannot look the other way, cannot let go, sin go unpunished, has in love poured that punishment on his own son. This is the good news that is the gospel. Christ lived a perfect life, died and rose again, and if you place your faith in him and his work, you will be saved. 
You don't have to endure your rightful punishment if you turn to Christ. Instead, the punishment you deserve for eternity, instead of receiving that, you will receive an eternity of joy in God's presence. You will become a child of God. You must simply turn to Christ in faith. Believe what he has done, repent of your sins, and follow him. There is nothing more important for me to tell you this evening than this right now. Turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and salvation from the wrath that is to come if you don't come to Christ. And there was nothing more important for the early church than to proclaim this. They felt the urgency of this, to proclaim the message of good news to the nations. This was their mission. This is what everything their entire life had been for, proclaiming the gospel for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is also our mission. We as Christians must live in a way that the entire goal of our life is to glorify God and make him known. We must proclaim him. We need the same urgency that the early church in Acts 1 had. We need the same desire to accomplish our mission. And too often, we get entangled with the things of the world and fail. Tonight, we're going to look at five things that the early church did to prepare for their mission. Five things that you and I, we must do if we are to succeed in ours. So let's see the first thing they do in verse 12. Point number one, the church obeys. Here we see the apostles after the Lord has ascended. Let's remember where we are in the, in the narrative and what's been going on in the book of Acts. Luke is writing Acts to show how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, grew the church. How God used the apostles and the church to reach the nations of his, for his glory, starting with the Jewish people. Essentially, this really divides the book of Acts into two parts. The first part in chapters 1 through 12 is the church reaching the Jews, the Jewish people, Israel. And the second part in chapters 13 through 28 is the church reaching the nations, the Gentiles, mostly through Paul's ministry. And at this point in Acts 1, the disciples have witnessed Christ's death and resurrection. And we pick up just after Christ ascended. Just two verses ago in verse 10, the disciples are now waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and begin their mission on the day of Pentecost and proclaiming Christ. Just to put this in perspective a little, for the past three years, the disciples relied on Christ for everything. He provided uh, spiritual guidance, wisdom, food, and even money for their taxes out of the fish of, uh, mouth of a fish. Now, they're left without him. And they're told to evangelize the whole world. That's all. This mission's simple. They're just the ones whom God is going to use uh, to reach the whole world. They're just going to take the world over with the gospel. No big deal. And I don't know about you, if I were there, I would probably be wondering, where should we even start? This is huge. Unfortunately, the Lord gave them a clear command in Acts 1-4 to wait in the city, city of Jerusalem, until he sends the promise of God, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see next time in Acts chapter 2. 
And that's exactly what they do. In verse 12, we see they return to Jerusalem. They obey the clear command of the Lord and go back to the city. Christ said to do something, and they do it. It seems simple enough. It's not even that far of a walk. We're told that it's, it's only a Sabbath day journey from the Mount of Olivet to, to Jerusalem, which is 2,000 cubits. And I know we all know what a cubit is, so uh, let me give you a little more idea of what that is. That's two-thirds of a mile. That's the distance from here to Lincoln Center. I mean, this seems really simple. Almost as if God had like, teed up something really easy for the church to do. I mean, the apostles could have walked to this in 20 minutes tops. But remember, they're going back to the city that just crucified Christ. There likely has not been a harder missionary assignment in the whole history of the church there to go to the place that just killed their leader and tell them that they were wrong and to repent. And they don't let the magnitude or difficulty of that task deter them or stop them. They just obey and go. They do it. God said it, so they do it. This is an important reminder for us. We can feel overwhelmed sometimes with what the Lord's called us to. We know we have to make decisions about how we, we're going to live our lives and where we'll live. Decisions that we believe in, in faith will give us the best opportunity to fulfill our mission. And we seek God for wisdom on how to proceed, but can feel frustrated by thinking that we don't even know where to start. We may be tempted to say to ourselves, I wish God would just tell me what to do like he did to the apostles. Just go to the city. But let's not forget, brothers and sisters, God has spoken with many clear directives in our lives. For instance, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pursue holiness. Run from any appearance of evil. Witness to everyone about Christ and what he's done. To your friends, family, co-workers, peers. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. So if there's something that leads to more sanctification in your life, you can see that coming, do that. If there's something that clearly results in less, don't do that thing. It's simple. We have clear commands and we need to obey them just as the early church did. Now, they don't just passively sit and wait. They actively use this time to prepare, which brings us to point two, the church unites. Point two, the church unites. Look at verse 13 with me. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. So they went straight to the upper room. The text stresses the immediacy of this. They went there without any delay whatsoever. Now we're not certain which room this is. Some people think it's the same as the, the Last Supper or maybe one of the other rooms in the, in the New Testament. We don't know. Now the point is that the disciples knew and they went straight there. And look uh, now, next, Luke gives us a list of the apostles. And he could have just said the apostles went to the upper room without giving any more detail. But Luke lists the name of each apostle to stress that these were the apostles that Christ himself commissioned. 
Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the son of James. These were the men that God ordained to fulfill this mission, and they were together. In verse 14, we see they were together with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So who are these people? The women likely refers to uh, the ones mentioned in Luke 8, 2, and 3. It says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women had followed Jesus through his entire ministry, even to his death, and contributed to the ministry from their personal incomes to support Jesus and his followers. These were likely the same women that had prepared the burial spices for Jesus after his crucifixion. Next, we see that it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in the upper room as well. This is the last place we see Mary mentioned in the New Testament. Please note that there is no one here praying to Mary. She is with all the other disciples praying to the Lord Jesus. Also, we know Mary had children because we see that Jesus' brothers were there with the disciples. Now, from the Gospels, we know Jesus had four brothers, James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon. And since Luke here says brothers plural, we know it was at least two. So most likely James and Jude, since they wrote books of the New Testament, but possibly all of them. We don't know. So point is, we see that they are together. Notice how Luke describes them, though. He says, all these with one accord. Now, some say that this can be translated, uh, they were all in one accord, so that this really proves that there were cars in the Bible. Let it sink in for a second. I know in New York we don't, we don't drive much. Now, all jokes aside, if we're not careful here, we can miss the impact of what we're being told. One accord can also be translated single-minded. It's interesting how it's used in Acts. For instance, in Acts 7, this same word describes the crowd that stones Stephen. They rushed at him together. Same word. They rushed at him in one accord, with one mind. They had one purpose. They were united to stop the church from witnessing about Christ. And it consumed them to the point that they executed a man. These people were so focused on one thing that everything else became secondary because of that desire. And that's what we see in Acts 1 here in our passage. They all were of one accord. The church is united by one all-consuming need. Don't think that this is just a few really close friends at the church, maybe a couple of relatives. Luke tells us in verse 15 that there was 120 people here. They were all focused on one thing, one goal, one mission, to bring the message of the gospel to the world. How else could they accomplish that unless they were united? Everything else had to become secondary. Brothers and sisters, we must do the same. We must be a church that is united if we are to accomplish this mission. But God does not leave us to pursue this unity by ourselves. He gifts the church with pastors and teachers to build up the body in unity. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. 
And he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we pursue unity and grow in it as we come together as the church and submit ourselves under our pastors and teachers that God has gifted to us. We pursue unity as we pursue growing in the truth. That's not all it is. Listen to how Paul describes this same-mindedness, unity, in Philippians 2, 2 through 5. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And for those of you that thought my car joke was bad, I just want to remind all of us that Harry preached a sermon on this passage a year ago where the punchline was shellfish ambition. Not once, but twice. (laughs) So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 2, Paul here connected that same mindedness with our love. So we must have right doctrine for unity, and we must, in love, look to the interests of our brothers and sisters sacrificially. There's no room in this unity for us to say something like, you know, I really love my brother, but I just don't like him very much. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now we all know that some people can be a little harder to be around than others. And our relationships are very strained from the sin in our lives from time to time. And I'll be the first to admit that I struggle with this as well. But there's no room to ignore this. This is not optional for us as the church. We must reflect the gospel in the way that we love one another. God forgave us while we were sinners and enemies. If Christ can humble himself and love for us sinners, we can by his power humble ourselves to love one another. That is why the mention of unity is so important in Acts 1. Because it's necessary to the mission of the church. That's what our Lord said in John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, we must be united because that's how the world will know that we're truly disciples of Christ. Who's going to believe what we say about the glorious truths of the gospel if they look at us and see we're just as miserable as everybody else? People know when they see that that we're united in love, like what's displayed in the gospel towards us, that something supernatural has happened. So we must be united. We must be of one accord. Our mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world is at stake and everything else must become secondary. So we've seen the church obeys, the church unites. Let's move to point three, the church prays. 
starting in verse 14. All these with one accord <clears throat> were devoting themselves to prayer. Church prays. So they're given their mission, told to wait. Then they urgently unite and pray. Think about that. When beginning something new, we, we can be so prone to just jump in and get things done. You know, we, we find out what our resources are, see who's gifted in what way, who has a desire to take what task, and if we're really, really determined to get work done, we find out what kind of committees we can form to get it done. But the church in Acts 1 here shows us what our priority should be, to pray. I'm so thankful for the sermon that Harry preached this morning on this topic. Good reminder. We are not told all the contents of the prayers here in Acts 1, but we get an idea based on the context and what Peter says. He says to the group in verse 17, uh, about, uh, talking about their ministry, and in verse 22, he mentions the witness uh, of the church, their mission of witnessing. So they're concerned with how they're going to complete their mission. And that's what they're praying about. Anything and everything necessary to witness to the whole world. For the power, the spirit Jesus promised, boldness and faithfulness in their witness, strength to persevere, wisdom in how to get the work done, successful advancement of the gospel, conversion of the lost, that dead people would be made alive to God for his glory. We're not talking about a quick prayer at dinner and before bed. The emphasis here is that they were continuously devoting themselves during this time. And don't miss the fact that we know that this time period was for 10 days. This prayer meeting went on for 10 days straight. Imagine getting an email invitation to that prayer meeting. Just come for 10 days. Why do they do this? There's so much to get done, and they're just sitting around and praying because they understood the gravity of the task and that without God, it truly would be mission impossible. They were to proclaim Christ to the, as the crucified and risen Savior, the Messiah, to the whole world, starting with the people who just killed him. They can't accomplish it on their own, not without divine intervention and empowerment. Also remember, they likely remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives and the one, uh, excuse me, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. The sense here is ask, seek, knock constantly. Do it and keep doing it. Don't stop. And that's exactly what the church is doing here in Acts 1. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you sense the need of the Spirit to work in your life as the apostles did? Do you see the task that you are called to and know that it can be done, but only through God and his power? Do you gather with other believers to pray for our witness as a church, that our proclamation will be faithful, that the preaching here would be powerful, that our evangelism would be fruitful, do we have the right priorities in our prayer? Now be encouraged. Look at how God has answered this prayer of these apostles and the church. And he continues to answer it. Look at how the gospel has gone out through the whole world. 
And God is still making a people for himself, a people from every tribe and from every tongue. Maybe we haven't stopped and and really thought this through, but each one of us that have believed in Christ that are here right now, 2,000 years later in New York City, are an answer to this prayer meeting. God is still delighting in answering their prayers for their mission to reach the nations for his glory. See, their priority in prayer must be ours. What are we praying for? Certainly, we should seek the Lord for for health and what we need in terms of work and food, as well as wisdom and living well. That's all good. But our priority must be to pray for our mission. We are to display God's glory by proclaiming Christ to every nation. Starting here in New York City, we need to be united in praying for God's glory to be manifest, for the kingdom to grow, and for sinners to be saved. After all, as Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. So we must be a people devoted to prayer. Let's move to point number four. The church submits to the teaching of God's word. The church submits to the teaching of God's word. In verse 13, we saw the apostles had been commissioned by God, but there's a very important detail in that list of apostles compared to the other lists we see in the Gospels. There's a tension there. There's one missing. Now there's 11 instead of 12 due to the defection of Judas. Now, to us, this might not seem like that big of a deal. I mean, after all, they have 11 more apostles than we have right now, right? But that thinking misses the point of what God is accomplishing in the book of Acts. See, last time our brother Max pointed out rightfully that the book of Acts is like a new beginning. God is doing something new. He is creating a new people from every nation, starting with Israel. So just as God had organized Israel as 12 tribes, he planned to display Jesus' reorganization of the righteous remnant of Israel through the witness of 12 apostles. One commentator says it very well. The 12-fold witness was required if Christianity was to represent itself to the Jewish nation. Jesus also told the disciples that there would be 12 In Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So now, they're going to go and witness to Israel. They're preparing for it. And the logical question is, who should be allotted this 12th share of the ministry? How would they witness to the Jewish people now that there were only 11? They were likely tempted to worry that God's plan was wrong that he made a mistake, or that he got the, they, they'd gotten the information from Jesus wrong somehow. You see, the church here needs guidance and teaching. They need to hear what God has said about this, and they need the teaching from Scripture. So Peter stands and leads the group by teaching them. He teaches them that there was no mistake, and there is no plan B. 
verses 15 through 17, he says, instructs them, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. That's why Judas became a guide for those that arrested Jesus. God had this plan the whole time. And he points out that the same Holy Spirit that they are waiting for is the one that spoke through David. God had planned this, and he had provided for them in the scriptures. This speech is packed very tightly, has a lot of nuance in it, and I'm going to try to simplify it for us. So stay with me for a minute. Peter's reference to David should remind us that Jesus is the son of David. That the promise of the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. David was a foreshadow of Christ. That he would be a king that will reign forever. More than that, in the passages quoted, David is seen as an innocent sufferer, which is another picture of Christ. So instead of David, we should really be thinking about Christ and his sufferings in these passages that Peter quotes in verse 20. The reason Peter uses these quotes specifically is that we see another person in these Psalms, the betrayer of the innocent sufferer, the betrayer of the innocent sufferer. So Peter's logic here is that what is said of the, in the Psalms of the enemy of this innocent sufferer is true of Judas the enemy of the true innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. This is why in verse 16, Peter says, Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He is showing that, Jesus, that Judas is the betrayer of the true and greater David that was pictured in the Psalms. This had always been the plan of God. Now, look, now Luke here interjects some information that's very important in the middle of Peter's speech, in verses 18 and 19. He says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their language, Akodema, that is, the field of blood. So now, many people point out here that this is not exactly the same as what Matthew tells us about what happened to Judas where Judas is so distraught over his sin and, uh, and what he's done, he, he hangs himself. Um, but this is fairly easily reconciled. After Judas attempted uh, to return the 30 pieces of silver to the priest, they used it to buy a field, which happened to be the same field that he hung himself in. So it's accurate to say he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. His money was used to buy the field that he died in. After Judas had, had hung himself, his body likely swelled due to the heat of the sun in, in the area. And when others attempted to take him down or the rope snapped, his body fell and burst open. And that's why it's referred to as the field of blood. Now, a minute ago, I said that there was an important reason for this. This is not just something entered in here for shock value. It shows that Judas is actually really the person that's being spoken of in the Psalms. In verse 20, while quoting uh, Psalm 69, Peter says, And let there be no one to dwell in it. See, that's the reason we're told the narrative about Judas. The way in which he died made it the field, and anyone who would go there, unclean by Jewish law. So there would be no one to dwell in it. This is a literal fulfillment of Psalm 69, 25. Now, the quote that Peter chooses, the quotes here, are written by David about the betrayer, which we spoke about. 
And Luke has given the additional information for us to understand that this is actually speaking about Judas. But these quotes accomplish two other things. The first portion of the quote in verse 20 could be translated, may his place be deserted. In this sense, it was a prediction of Judas leaving his place with the twelve. He deserted from it. That's part of why, Ju- uh, why in verse 25, Peter says that Judas turned to his own place. He turned from the place with the apostles to his own place. So this shows that this definitely was known and planned for by God and that, uh, that one of the 12 would be the betrayer. But remember, we spoke about a second ago, God still planned that there would be 12 apostles to reach the nation of Israel, to fulfill this mission. So now the church has a problem. They know what God wants, but how do they get this 12th apostle? And that's where the second quote comes in. From Psalm 109.8, about the um, betrayer, again, we see the answer. Let another take his office. The office of the apostle should be filled by another. They must fill this office. Peter concludes with what the church should do in verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They must fill the office. So Peter instructs them on the qualifications of the apostle here. This had to be someone that was following the apostle, uh, Jesus, with the apostles, the entire ministry of Christ. They had to witness the resurrection of Christ and were there until he was taken away. So why do the apostles need this specific qualification? The apostles were going to give a witness to the Jewish people of the truth of everything that Jesus had said and done And they had to have seen, witnessed all of those to be a true witness to the nation. So Peter has shown the church from Scripture that this was not an accident. And the Lord intends that the church proceed with its mission. Yes, they need a 12th apostle to witness to the nation of Israel. And God, uh, that God is creating a new people from. These were very important challenges for the church. They had to overcome these. They had to deal with the sovereignty of God and his plan here if they were to honor God by the way in which they were going to proceed and complete their mission. The church had to have teaching from God's word. Likewise, we as believers need to gather regularly and be instructed in God's word by the teachers and preachers that God has gifted us. This must be a priority in our life if we're to complete our mission. But it's not just enough to sit under good teaching. You have to do something to it. You have to respond, which is what we see lastly. Point five, the church responds to the word of God in faith. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. So given the two qualifications, there were two that were qualified, Joseph and Matthias. Then we're told in verse 24, they prayed. Again, their priority is prayer. 
They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Which one you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. So they let the Lord choose, which is actually the third qualification for an apostle. The Lord had to choose the apostle. Now, it's really interesting to see how they begin the prayer. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. Seems like a a bit of a strange way to start a prayer. But it's actually the church remembering what happened in 1 Samuel 16, where Samuel is excited about one of the sons of Jesse and thinks that he'd be a really good fit for the king based on the way he looks. But the Lord's admonition to Samuel comes in verse 7 of chapter 16. He says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what the church here is praying for is that God would be the judge of who his man was. They're making sure that they would not be tempted in any way whatsoever to make the decision based on what they can see, especially after how Judas had just fooled everyone for three years. So what do they do? And verse 26 tells us, they cast lots. This is likely some form of a dice or, or some stones with uh, one stone with each person's name written on it and it was drawn out of a bag. Or, uh, there's many different ways that we have records that this was done in this culture. But the practice does come from the Old Testament. And we read in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So here they are trusting that this decision is coming from the Lord. Now this is the last time we read of lots in Scripture. It just wasn't done anymore. So why? Remember the context here. The church does not yet have the gifting of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit. They don't have the gifts of prophecy yet. So they rely on the lots to help them know what the will of God is here. So the natural thing we should be wondering is, well, why don't we do this for decisions in our lives now? Well, it's because We have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we have the completed New Testament. It reveals everything that we need uh, that the Lord desires for us to know about life and godliness. We don't need lots. We can look intently into the word of God, submitting and responding to the teaching and preaching of it and obeying it. We don't need anything else. So lastly, we see in verse 26, Matthias is chosen by the Lord. Some people get a little confused here, and we need to take a little time to address this. They think that since, well, we see here there's 12 apostles, and well, there must be only 12 apostles. And they try to argue that since we don't see anything else in Scripture about Matthias, that maybe he wasn't the right guy. And since, well, we know that Paul comes later, and he's clearly an apostle based on the Damascus Road experience and, and all the mighty works he did, and after all, he, we see him very prominently in the book of Acts, maybe he was the real guy, and the church just got it wrong here with Matthias. They should have waited. We have to remember that the church here is starting their witness to the Jewish nation. The, the mission of the church was in two stages, just like Acts has two parts to it. That's why Acts has two parts. First, they go to Israel, then the Gentiles. They needed 12 apostles to witness to 
the nation of Israel on Pentecost. So there's no way Paul could have been the 12th apostle that's being spoken of here. Could not have been the guy for the job. Furthermore, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And he, Paul even mentions the 12 as one group, one unit in 1 Corinthians 15.5. So we know it's not Paul. Matthias was the right choice. And we shouldn't be concerned that nothing is ever mentioned in Matthias again because the same is true of all of the other apostles except Peter, James, and John. None are ever mentioned again. We can trust that they did mighty works for God because the early church turned the entire world upside down with its proclamation and its faithfulness. The chapter ends with a full complement of the 12 apostles being restored and the church is ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit and beginning their witness for their mission. The church is ready. They've prepared. So one last thought before we close. One last thought on application. Brothers and sisters, we can sometimes be so focused on just getting through our days, weeks, and months, years that we miss the urgency of our mission. How many of us have said to ourselves, I'm just waiting until the pandemic's over to do fill in the blank. How many of us even today are so focused on tomorrow morning at work or school and preparing for that that we've not prayed or thought at all about our mission, how we are going to witness for God's glory? Let us do as the early church did. Obey the clear commands of God. Unite for our mission. Pray tirelessly for God's empowerment. Submit to the faithful teaching regularly and respond to the word in faith so that we can accomplish our mission, proclaiming the gospel to the nations for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are so humbled by what you have done, what we see that you have done and are continuing to do uh, in your church, in this church, in the churches in the city, the nation, and around the world. Truly, if, if you do not build the house, we labor in vain. So, Father, we pray that we would be a church that is, is united, that we, we would be a church that is praying. We would be a church that is obeying and regularly sitting under and responding to the word that's being taught. Lord, we pray that you would manifest Christ through us powerfully for our mission and that we would not get sidetracked by anything else because everything else is secondary. So, Father, we pray this week as we go forth that we would have many opportunities to proclaim you boldly, witness powerfully to what you have done for us in Christ and the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would work the miracle of saving sinners, making dead people alive to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.